0: Hey, so glad you're joining us this weekend. And uh, if I've never met you, my name's Dan. I happen to be one of the pastors here at the Norton Campus of Grace Church in the greater Akron area. And uh, so it's good to be with you this weekend. Um, Before we start, just want to say this, many of you have been watching the news and we're praying for those in Texas. And you had to be watching this in Texas, we're praying for you and I hope you will uh, continue to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Texas as they're kind of undergoing kind of a tough week, uh, asking God to help and uh, asking us to be the hands and feet of Jesus time like this. And so, praying for Texas. Uh, we're in the second week of a conversation that we've been having. And if you did not, by chance, get to watch the first week, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Stop this video, all right, and go back and watch that first week. I think it's going to help you out with this week. So go ahead and stop this video. Go catch up on the first week. But if you were here last week and following along with this conversation, we're talking about something that Jesus was obsessed with. We're saying this, that if you wanted to describe the ministry, the message, and the life of Jesus using three words, the three words that you would use would be the kingdom of heaven. In fact, I said this last week. You can't really understand the message, the ministry, and the life of Jesus apart from understanding the kingdom of heaven. If you don't understand the kingdom of heaven, here's what might happen. You're gonna be tempted in your life to hold on to things, right? not let go of things because you think if I hold on to them, I'm gonna win. Yet when you understand the kingdom and how the kingdom works, you realize that unless I let them go, I might lose, right? I might lose. And so that's what we're taking a look at. And Jesus' very first words in his adult public ministry in Matthew 4, Matthew 4. We're just doing kind of a glance at the book of Matthew, looking at the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 4, 17. We looked at this last week. He said this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So we just said this, what's the kingdom of heaven? Where is it? When is it? We said this, where's the kingdom of heaven? Well, it has more to do with rule and reign than realm. It's the space God rules and reigns. When does the kingdom of heaven show up? Well, it's right now, but not completely yet, right? We said it this way, the war's been won, but it's not done, right? Uh, We said, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's the right side up message, right? It's the right side up way of living in a world that's upside down. Uh, we, we said this then, uh, how does it show up? Well, it's a message that's proclaimed, but it's a way of life that's demonstrated. See, that's gonna help us, right? Gives us some hooks to have the rest of the conversation because the next several chapters kinda break this down. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says, after he announces kingdom of heaven, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming what? The good news of the kingdom. And then look what he does, it's gonna come in handy healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread. People brought to him all who were ill, various diseases, suffering, severe pain, demon possessed, having seizures, paralyzed. what did he do? He healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. All of a sudden, Jesus is proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom. And so when we look at the next several chapters, here's what we got. We said the kingdom is a message that's proclaimed and it's a way of life that's demonstrated. So when you look at the next several chapters, chapters five through seven for us, they kind of break it down this way. Chapters five through seven are simply the message of the right side up kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. And then chapters eight and nine, which will be next week, is the demonstration of the right side up kingdom. All I want to look at this weekend is the message, right? Chapters five through seven. And so if you have your Bibles open, you'll want to turn to chapter five of Matthew and then kind of put your finger where chapter seven is and kind of do this with it. Because if you do this, what you have in chapters five through seven is Jesus' first recorded sermon. Uh, it's popular, uh, popularly called the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe that's how you've heard about it, right? Because it's a sermon that he gives on a mountain, And when he gives this sermon, here's what I want you to know, because we're going to read parts of it, right? We're going to kind of do a flyover of it, right? But when you read it, here's what I want you to know. When Jesus was giving his first sermon, it would have left some of the people listening disoriented, discombobulated. It would have unsettled them. It would have sounded unusual to them. And I think it will to you as well. Uh, Maybe a good way to illustrate this. Uh, Raise your hand if you're out there, you ever have driven in a foreign country where they drive on the other side of the road. Anybody ever done that, right? You ever do that? Yeah, that's unsettling, isn't it? Because you get in the car and you're used to getting on one side of the road. That's the way we drive here, right? And all of a sudden, everybody in the country you're in, they drive on the left side of the road. And you realize that everybody's driving in the direct opposite way than you're used to driving. Here's what happens in Sermon on the Mount. Jesus invites us to drive on the other side of the road, right? And it's gonna feel like we're driving on the other side of the road when we read this. Now, if we're gonna understand what Jesus is doing here in Matthew five through seven, the first thing we gotta do, we gotta slow down a minute, and we gotta look at his audience because there's something powerful here look at your bibles in matthew 5 verse 1 look what it says it says when jesus saw the crowd so we talked about that end of chapter 4 he went up on a mountainside sat down and then it says this his disciples came to him and he began to teach them now, now this is interesting and maybe you never thought of this but who in the world are his disciples at this point well the easy answer would be to say i bet it was the 12 disciples because you've heard of that right But the truth is, when you read the book of Matthew, it's not until chapter 10 that he gathers together the 12. His disciples at this point are the people who are following him, which consists of who? (laughs) Well, two sets of brothers that are blue-collar fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Beyond them, there are people who are diseased, people who are suffering, people who are marginalized in their society, people that others deemed crazy, people who were on the fringe, uh, people who could not work. (laughs) And there was no welfare system, by the way. So you know where they lived? (laughs) More than likely the slums. (laughs) They were the unimportant. They were the unnoticed. They were the ones who didn't have much influence. They were the least of society. Something must be wrong with them, people might think. Once you get that audience in mind, the words Jesus first speaks in his sermon have electricity. (laughs) They begin to pop. Because what Jesus does at the very beginning of his sermon is something that would have been familiar to a Jewish audience. He, the preacher, the king, announcing this kingdom, he pronounces blessing. But what would have been unusual is on whom he would have pronounced that blessing. Let's read it, and then I want to help you understand it. Here's what he says. The first word he says is blessed. When you think blessed, just think this, to be put into right relationship. And, And once you're in right relationship, you live with the consequences of being in right relationship. Or maybe another way to think of blessed is happy because God is with them and for them. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or or happy are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Why? They'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. They'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful. They'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is of particular interest to me is how Jesus starts his sermon. He starts it with a blessing, but what I find interesting is who it is that he blesses that he says is blessed. It is counterintuitive, it is head scratching. It's not the people you would assume would be blessed because we live in an upside down world. And namely his audience would have found it counterintuitive that he was pronouncing blessing on the most unlikely of people It feels like he's driving the car of this blessing down the wrong side of the road. It feels upside down to them because they have gotten so used to living in an upside down world. And in this upside down world, the people in his audience would have been anything but blessed. And yet the message of the king is this. I want you to write it down. The message of the king is a right side up blessing in an upside down world. The message of the king is a right-side-up blessing. He came with a right-side-up message. The world is upside down. And the kingdom message and the blessing of the kingdom reverses our perceptions. I came across an interesting piece of art. I'm not condoning the artists, and I'm not going to mention their names, but I just found the artwork interesting uh, because of something that maybe it illustrates uh, these two artists, uh, they they put together are, and this is just a picnic table, and as you can see, this picnic table is just full of trash, uh, cans, coke cans, beer cans, got uh, BB holes through them, and just just looks like trash on a picnic table. And yet, what's fascinating is this: when the artist dim the lights and then shine a light through the trash onto the back wall, it becomes this masterpiece, the skyline of Manhattan. Uh, They did it with another piece of uh, art. Uh, They just kind of filled the floor, literally filled the floor with toilet paper and old ice cream cartons and just just trash and refuse everywhere, right? And then they did the same thing. They dim the lights and shone the light in the back and all of a sudden you have a work of art. You see, I think in some way there's a sense to which this illustrates what Jesus is doing here. Jesus turns the light of the kingdom message on this pile of people who are perceived to be trash in their society and shows them that the blessing of the gospel of this kingdom is for them. And he said he pronounces nine blessings on them. And we are accustomed to taking the nine blessings separate. And I would suggest don't do that. I would suggest take them all together, almost like a stained glass window. Look at what it says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, begs a question. Is he talking about the economically poor or the spiritually poor? And I would say that that probably is a consequence of our upbringing that we would think of those two separate (laughs) Don't think of them separate. The fact of the matter is these are poor people that he's talking to. Uh, they're the sick disease they would have been on they would have lived in the slums. They wouldn't have been able to work. And because they were financially poor, they were seen to have no spiritual clout whatsoever. Uh, he says, "Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are grieving," he says. Those who grieve and mourn, not only over their own sin and kind of the, what it's done to them, but those who look at the state of their world and grieve. They mourn. He says, blessed are the meek. You know what that means? Blessed are those who are deemed unimportant and out of control. Man, think of the people he's talking to. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You ever been hungry? You ever been thirsty? like legitimately thirsty? He's saying this, blessed are those who have a visceral longing to see righteousness. Righteousness just means right relationships. Blessed are those who just so long for it, They're just so thirsty for it. So thirsty to see right relationships between God and man and between people. They hunger for it. They long for it. He says, blessed are the merciful, those who see people who are hurting and in need, and they act with acts of kindness and compassion. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, the people for whom prestige, popularity, and position in this world are not nearly as important as seeing God. As pleasing God. That's what he's saying. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers. What's that? Those who would insert themselves into conflict in order to bring reconciliation and peace. And then he says this Blessed are the persecuted and the insulted. Those who sometimes, in inserting themselves in the middle of conflict, will be persecuted and insulted. Jesus is talking to an audience and they would have been like us. Jesus says the blessing of the kingdom appears to be upside down in this world only to realize that he's the king who came and turned the map right side up. And here's what happens when you take these nine blessings and you put them together like a stained glass window. Do you see who it's a picture of? Don't miss what's going on here. The king is giving the message and he's saying blessed are those who can relate with the one who's giving the blessing. Do you know anyone who came from poverty and had no clout, humanly speaking? Do you know anybody else who mourned over the state of the world, who actually described himself as meek and gentle? Are you aware of a story of anybody else who was kind and merciful in the face of impending needs? Somebody who considered pleasing God more important than being popular, having a position, gaining prestige? Do you know of someone else who so thirsted for people to be in right relationship with God that they made it their life mission? Do you know of anybody else who inserted himself into the middle of conflict and in so doing was killed, not only insulted? Yeah, the stained glass window of these blessings when put together Show us this beautiful picture of Jesus. And the king is coming and he's saying, blessed. Blessed. This is the right side up blessing in an upside down world. Blessing in the kingdom or happiness is for those, listen, who allow the light of the king to somehow shine through their life in a way that reflects him to the world. (laughs) That's interesting. It's actually what caused... Jesus to say what he said in verses 14 through 16. He says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, I want your light to shine. Why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify the King, your Father in heaven. The message of the King is this right-side-up blessing in a world that's upside down. Uh, Jesus goes on and he says something else because the sermon that he preached has some really interesting characteristics about it. Verse 17, he says something interesting. I want you to see this with me. And I want to teach you something. here that's so powerful. I think it's actually the bulk of his message is what we're going to look at next. Verse 17 is where it begins. It says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the Torah or the prophets, the Ten Commandments and the 600 and some odd commands around them. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew says that over and over again. He says, I didn't come to... It's not like the Old Testament's useless. It's not like it's abolished now that I'm here. I came to fulfill them. But he says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. Therefore... Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands right, and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now look at this, you ready? Buckle your seatbelt, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, look at this, say that word out loud. Unless your righteousness, what? Surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) right? I mean, this sounds tough. Uh, You you may be newer to the Bible and say, why does this sound tough? Well, you got to understand that from outside appearance, there was nobody who would have appeared more righteous than the Pharisees and teachers of the law from an outside appearance, nobody was more righteous. And what Jesus is saying, unless you're more righteous, unless unless your righteousness surpasses their righteousness, and you read that, and maybe even those who were listening, it would have disoriented. They're like, what? (laughs) Like, how do we do that? And yet, here's the point. Jesus came to a very outside focused world. And he taught a righteousness that surpasses, that's deeper than just an outside righteousness. And it's a righteousness that doesn't just legislate and modify outside behavior, but it goes deeper and it transforms because of a brand new heart into a life that's been transformed. Here's what I want you to write down: The message of the king is an inside focused righteousness in an outside focused world. That doesn't mean that an inside right, uh, focused righteousness doesn't show up, it shows up like fruit. But it's a, what he's talking to is a world that focused on modifying the outside of your life. Jesus saying, is saying this, that, that when the king is ruling and reigning in your life, something deeper happens. I heard this illustration this week, it kind of helped me understand this. Uh, raise your hand out there if you ever have taken uh, lessons playing some instrument. This ooh, yeah. Some of you out there, I can see your hand, right? Through the lens. Um, I took uh, lessons. That may surprise you. I've been asking Pastor Aiden if I can play on the worship team for a long time, can't get on there maybe you can petition him but I took lessons right I took piano lessons when I was in elementary school and uh, I think I took them for four or five months Uh, I went through three teachers I mean I I was rough right but I can remember that taking these piano lessons uh, one of the first things you learn is is the scale right uh, you kind of learn to play the scale and uh, you kind of begin to just rote memory, begin to play. And I, I, I got the scale, right? Like I could get the scale. I was like, man, I was accelerated on the scale. I was really good at the scale. Like, hey, teacher, I can do the scale. My problem was taking that scale and somehow weaving it in so that all of a sudden I could play songs, Right? Like I couldn't play songs to save my life. I could do the the uh, that kind of stuff like boom, boom 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 boom. I could do that, but but the purpose of the scale is so that somehow it kind of ties together the scale in a way that it plays music that all of a sudden shows up as songs. Listen, listen. Jesus is saying the law is not bad. It's necessary. But it's the scale. It's the scale, so to speak. And following it does not ensure that you're going to play the music of the kingdom. That's what he's saying. When the king takes over my heart, the scale of the law begins to take shape in a way that the music of the king shows up in my life in a deeper way. And that sheet music Jesus talked about. He said, here's how the Law and the Prophets tie together, the scale of the Law and Prophets. Matthew 22, you don't need to turn there, just look at this, Matthew 22, he said this. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. First and greatest commandment. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, all of the Torah and the Prophets hang on these two commands. He's saying, that's the sheet music of the king. What's the sheet music? Love God. He's saying, love others. And so what Jesus is saying in this sermon, in the way of the king, it's an inside out righteousness that begins to play the music of the king from a heart that's been changed by the king. And that music is, I'm gonna love God with everything I have and I'm going to love others as myself. It's what causes Jesus to clarify some things. Look, look, just real quickly, we'll look at a couple of these. Verse 21. He said, You've heard it say, here's the scale, to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Look here a second. That's the scale, right? Do re me. Chances are most of us are pretty safe on the murder part, right? I mean, at least I hope we are, right? Amen? Most of us are like, I mean, I hope you haven't murdered anybody this week, right? I haven't, right? We're pretty safe. Okay, I'm not trying to make light of I'm just saying chances are most of us watching this are pretty safe. Jesus says, that's what you've heard. But I tell you, here's the music of the king. Anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to it's judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, or sister, raka, or this this, this uh, despising term, it's the answer to the court. Anyone who says, "You fool," be in danger of hellfire. What's Jesus saying? He's saying this: When the music of the king starts to play, I realize that it's not just about playing the scale, it's not just about I don't murder, but it's about realizing the pride in my heart, the, the, the contempt and the anger for another individual who I don't like or I don't agree with. And so what I do is I degrade them and their humanity. You know what it does? It violates the sheet music of loving God and loving others as myself. Uh, He he gives another example. He's just doing this over and over again. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the scale. That's what you've heard, right? That's right from the Ten Commandments. And remember whose audience here is his disciples, the followers of his, right? So he said, here's the scale. Here's the law. Don't, Don't crawl into bed with somebody who you're not married to. That's the scale. Right, like, God is clear throughout his word that, that sex and physical intimacy is reserved for the covenant relationship of marriage. he so said, here's the scale. Don't commit adultery. But he says, but the sheet music, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he says, I'm so serious about this. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He takes it further, doesn't he? And he says when when the sheet music of the king begins to play, it's not just, I'm not going to jump into bed with somebody who's not my wife. But he's saying all of a sudden, it goes deeper. And he says, it involves even a look is the word or a gaze. Literally, here's what it means, to stare in order to fuel sexual desire for her. That's what it means. When I see others as an object to maximize my pleasure, listen close, now listen. When I see others as an object to maximize my pleasure or even minimize my pain, What I've begun to do is I see them as objects to serve my kingdom and I've stopped playing from the sheet music of the king of heaven. Let me show you one more example, one more example. Uh, He says this in verse 38, says, you've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You take my tooth, I'll take yours. You take my eye, I take yours. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, so why don't you be extraordinarily generous and give them your coat as well? If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Then he says, verse 43, he says, You've heard it said. Here's the scale love your neighbor. Do, re, me, and hate your enemy. Easy. But the sheet music of the king, as I tell you, love your enemies. When you start playing from the king's sheet music, and pray for those who persecute you. You see, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses just playing the scale, this outward appearance of being righteous, he says, unless it surpasses that, you'll never be playing from the sheet music of the king, which surpasses an external adherence to the law he doesn't just stop there stay in your bibles for a minute let this come alive he doesn't just cover the things that we shouldn't do but he says when you play the king sheet music it affects what you do do look at verse 1 chapter 6 says oh it's not just the things you shouldn't do it's be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them if you do do that you have no reward from your father in heaven. What he's saying, is not just avoiding the wrong things, but it's doing the right things for the right reasons. <laughs> That's what he's saying. When I do my acts of righteousness to be seen by others, here's what happens. Listen, so key. When I do my acts of righteousness to be seen by others, I've stopped playing from the sheet music of the king. I'm not doing them out of love for God and love for others, but now others are upon to massage my love for me because when they see me do my acts of righteousness, then they'll be impressed with what? Me. So that's why you can read this on your own, but verse two he says, hey, when you're helping somebody out, don't don't, don't go blow a trumpet. Look at me, I'm helping somebody, right? Verse five he says, when you pray, don't stand on the street corner and give this flowery prayer so people are impressed with how you pray and love you. Verse 16 says, when you fast, Uh, don't make your face look so everybody's like oh man it's incredible your devotion so that they are impressed with you and love you he says when that happens you're adhering to some external things but you're not playing from the internal sheet music of the king and the thing that ties the law and the prophets together is this love god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love others All the law and the prophets hang on those two things. Jesus said some other things in this sermon. Not only did he say the message of the king is an inside-focused righteousness in an outside-focused world. It's a right-side-up blessing in an upside-down world. Look at verse 19 real quick. We'll make quick work of these last two. It says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, moth, vermins. I like that word, right? (laughs) Vermins. Destroy. That's what uh, Pastor Aiden talks about in his attic, right? Vermins, right? And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermins do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Get down to verse 31. He says, so don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things Your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but here's key, underline this in your Bibles, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow (laughs) will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble with itself. What's he talking about here? He's talking about your treasure, and Jesus is simply teaching a truth that's easy to observe. You and I treasure what we seek. And what we seek, we treasure. And what we treasure, listen to this, has the affection of our heart. You you know that. What we treasure has the affection of our heart. Here's the principle. The principle that Jesus is teaching is this, is that the message of the king is to seek first his kingdom in a seek first my kingdom world. We live in a world where it's like, I want to seek my kingdom first. And what Jesus is saying is this, you can tell what you treasure by what you're storing up and by what you're worried about. Write that down somewhere. No slide for it. You can tell what you treasure by what and where you store up things and by what you worry about. You're saying, didn't help me understand. Well, let me ask you, what are you storing up today? What what are you storing up? Maybe write these questions down think about them, ask yourself these questions. What occupies your time and your energy? Maybe this question, where do you put your best efforts? What endeavors get the very best of you? That might be where you're storing up your gifts, your talents. Now, where do I spend the most of my money? Do I double-dog dare you to do a test. Go through your checkbook and see where you spent the most money in the last 30 days. It might show you what you treasure and it might help you find your heart. What gets the most of your passion? You see, whatever I store up is going to tell me what I treasure and what I treasure is going to, when I open the treasure box, wherever that's at, my heart's going to be there. And what Jesus is saying is this, in this upside down world, if if we don't recognize that we're in an upside down world with an upside down map, we're gonna end up putting our treasure in the wrong place. And wherever we put our treasure, time, energy, gifts, talent, money, whatever it is, our heart's gonna be there. Our affections are gonna be there because this world is upside down. And so I can look at what, what I have stored up Where my energies go, where my finances go, where my passions are directed, and see where I store up treasure. Uh, There's another way I can tell, though, uh, what it is. It's by what I'm worried about. (laughs) What I'm worried about. Maybe you could write some of these questions. What is it that preoccupies your thoughts? What gets you up in the middle of the night? What are you most afraid of losing? I heard somebody say this. Whatever you're most afraid of losing might be what you worship. I love that statement. So I say, what are you working the hardest to keep? Here's the point. I don't want to be labored. It kind of is a simple point that Jesus is making. But he's saying this upside down world. Here's what it is: seek first my kingdom. And Jesus comes and he turns the map over and says, no, no. If you seek first his kingdom. In his righteousness, all of a sudden you're going to begin to see things the way the king sees them. See, it's easy when the map is turned upside down to be preoccupied with my kingdom, to make a priority my kingdom, to allow my attentions and my worries to fade into my kingdom. And what Jesus in the message of the kingdom says is, When I turn the map right side up, I seek first his kingdom. It's a seek first his kingdom message. It's an inside out righteousness message. It's a right side up blessing message. Which leads to this last thing that just strikes me. And this is where we'll end. But in chapter 7, in this message, and you can almost feel his audience like, whoa, We've not heard anything quite like this before. In fact, the whole sermon ends that way. We've never heard anybody teach like this before. That's how unsettled they were. Go to the very end of the sermon and you'll see that's what it says. It says this in chapter seven, verse one, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Can, can I just say this? This is interesting. These are some of the most quoted words of the Bible, whether somebody's read the Bible or not. It's like, it feels like everybody's saying that out there. Don't judge, right? Don't judge me. And and, and when we just leave it there, we kind of miss what Jesus is saying. He says, in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. With what measure you use will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Let me ask you a question before I go any further. According to what Jesus is saying here, does my brother have a speck of sawdust in his eye? Does he? Yeah. He says, why do you look at that speck of sawdust in his eye? So he has a speck in his eye. There's something in his eye. But he says, but you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your eye? He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 12, he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. (laughs) This is Jesus is actually being a little bit funny here. Like, this is some humor in his sermon. Like, you can almost be like, I don't know, you can almost hear the people laughing, right? Because he's saying, hey, why are you looking for that little piece of sawdust in the guy besides the eye when you got a telephone pole, right? Or a big two-by-four hanging, like, he's being funny. The point is this, my brother might have a speck in his eye. But what Jesus is saying is this, Before I get preoccupied with the speck in somebody else's eye, I have to acknowledge that I have something in my own eye. And until I do, I will never, listen, recognize that my vision is impaired to see whatever it is that I think I see in their eye. What's the message, kingdom message? Last one for today. The message of the king is to be quick to examine myself and a quick to judge other's world. Boy, do we need that today, right? Jesus is saying that in this upside-down world, people are quick to judge. Anybody want to say amen out there to that? Yeah, sure. He's saying it's easier for me to see what's wrong with other people than it is to see what's wrong with myself. It's easier to focus my attention on what I perceive to be wrong with them. The, the, The word judge is to decide and to assume that God is on the side of my judgment of it. (laughs) So what I do is I caricaturize others. I slander others. Jesus, listen, listen. Jesus is not saying that my brother doesn't have something in his eye. He is saying to pick at what is in his eye while my vision is impaired with a huge object in my eye is not only duplicitous, it's contrary to the message of the kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom says, we all got stuff in our eye. We all got struggles and we all got sin. You do and I do. Every time we partake of the bread and the cup, we admit it. Here we come, sinners in need of a king, right? And what he's saying, the message of the king simply means that I will humbly acknowledge and recognize that and deal with that before I assume I am clearly seeing the speck in my brother's eye. Doesn't mean that I don't want to help my brother out with the speck in his. But I promise you, listen, this is so key, that my posture will be completely different if I'm quick to examine myself first. And when I go to a brother with that posture of humbly examining myself first, I can help him deal with the speck in his eye out of humility and grace in a way that might change his life forever. The message of the king is this right side up blessing in an upside down world. It's an inside focused righteousness in an outside focused world. It's a seek first God's kingdom in a seek first my kingdom world. And it's a quick to examine myself and a quick to judge others' world. And here's how Jesus ends. Verse 24, he says, Therefore, those listening online this weekend, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock rain came, streams rose, winds blew, beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock, message of the kingdom. But everyone who hears these words of mine doesn't put them into practice. It's like a foolish man. He built his house, his life on sand. Rain came, streams rose, winds blew, beat against the house. It fell with a great crash. Jesus is simply saying this. I want you to hear me today. It's easy, it's easy to build your life upside down. It's easy to worry about making a living, being successful, making sure my kids are the star of the team, instead of taking the time to build on the foundation of the message of the king. And so what we do is we just start building. And when the storms come, and they will, it's the message of the king that becomes the foundation that holds firm the life built on the message of his kingdom. And so God, I'm so grateful that Jesus came and told us what it was to live with the light of the kingdom shining through many of us who maybe even society and culture would see and perceive as a pile of trash, I don't know. Unimportant, not influential. And God, I pray that as the light of the kingdom shines in and through us, that they would see our King, Jesus. And God, that they would see people who are playing from the sheet music of the King, following the right side up map, treasuring, what the king treasures, seeking first his kingdom, humbly willing to examine ourselves before being quick to simply point out what's wrong with everybody else. And God, I pray that you would help us as followers of Jesus to build our life on that foundation. And for those who maybe have never said yes to the king, might this be the online weekend where they say yes Jesus I want to say yes to your love for me I believe you died for me that you took the place for me for the punishment of my sin and I want to say yes to you as my Savior and Lord this weekend Father I'm so grateful that the gospel of the kingdom is a gospel that leads to Freedom from sin leads to being a part of the family of God and leads to a hope forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.